Welcome everyone to Flyover Footy. Uh, if this is a special episode in that if you ever thought, boy, that was a nerdy episode of Flyover Footy, uh, we're about to blow it out of the freaking water, everyone. Uh, Matt Baker is here to join me because who other than Matt can make something as nerdy as, as what we're about to do? How's it going, Matt? It's going really well. Uh, this is something that I've looked forward to talking about and with you for quite a while. We, we've always talked about we need to do an episode like this, um, but it's it's getting real at this point for St. Louis City. So it's October 19th as we're recording this. Um, we are less than a month away from our own expansion draft, from things really getting real. So the thing that we've always talked about uh, in my mind and I've, I've tried to stay plugged into for years as they've grown are these weird little MLS quirks and mechanisms that exist that are so much different than any other league that we follow. Why do they exist? What are they? Um, how does anybody even manage to keep track of this? Uh, and spoiler alert, most people don't. Right. <laughs> uh, but it, it's it's an interesting to me because it, it's all about a league that's so young and they're all designed to help that league stay afloat, uh, keep them alive. Mm. So, I mean, all of that we'll get into. And I'm just I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Um, hopefully we keep it a little interesting and exciting. I think I think there's an audience that wants to know what we're getting into here in St. Louis, and so I'm excited to, to talk through it with them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think uh, we were just going to call this like a soccer 101 thing like Total Soccer Show did, uh, several uh, large, long series of that kind of stuff. Um, but for two reasons, we are not going to call it that. One is that Moon Valjean and Michelle Smallman did a show that is Soccer 101. I haven't gotten through it. Matt, Have you start, you started it, right? It is good. It, it's quality in that it's much different than the Total Soccer Show. They do little quick hits on some very foundational things in soccer, MLS city. Uh, I feel it's, it's a nice gateway from the larger St. Louis sports crowd into our world. Yeah. So listen guys. Yeah. Like we know our audience, first of all, our audience will go listen to that first, I'm sure, right? Just to see what it's all about. We'll probably all learn something, a little something here and there. Um, but that's the 100 level class. All right. Our audience is a 200 level class audience. Okay. So, um, this is going to get even deeper than that. It's the really crazy stuff that off, honestly, like it may be more like a three or 400 class because it is going to get deep into the weeds. Hopefully not too much. We'll just see like how this, how this goes, but I'm very excited because I'm looking at this outline and I'm already seeing things that I never knew the ins and outs of. And you know, Matt, we are opposites and thank God I am not a details guy. And so I, purposefully did not read up on this thinking, okay, I'm going to be the guy that can ask Matt the questions if something doesn't make sense, or if there's some other details that I wasn't sure about that he may have figured out. So I'm the idiot and Matt is here to be professor, doctor, PhD, Matt Baker, um, of MLS rules, Esquire, something like that. Um, is that it? Are we ready to go? I think we're ready. The MLS 202. Yeah, MLS 202, 201, the advanced <laughs> economics of American soccer. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. We're going to start with an introduction on why the hell MLS is the way that it is, because we got to we got to set the plate before we, we start the meal here. It's very important. It, it really doesn't make any sense when you come into it and you're used to either American sports or any level of soccer across the world, because it is entirely unique. Every single thing we're talking about today is entirely unique to MLS mm. 
from the from the overall dollars and cents uh, to every little nook and cranny of the rules. It's all unique, uh, but it's going to impact St. Louis now very directly for ever, hopefully. Well, for the foreseeable future until they revamp the rules. Let's say that uh, it's important to know. Uh, not just the rules, because when we sign players in the season in the next few months, especially in the next few months, this is all going to be why. When you hear certain things like uh, we signed a player to a max TAM deal like Roman Berkey is on, uh, you might have no idea what that means until you listen to the show. And that's our ultimate goal is to give a little background and uh, contextualize a lot of the things that are going to be affecting St. Louis soccer. But before all of that, why are we even talking about this? Why are we living in this crazy world of GAM and TAM and designated players and U21s and salary caps? And you have to go back to at least 1993 when MLS was officially founded as a limited liability corporation. MLS was created uh, as a response to FIFA awarding the 1994 World Cup to, uh, to the United States. A requirement is that they had to have a top flight league which at the time, the United States had no top flight league. Hadn't since 1985, if you count the NASL as a first division league, uh, which is debatable, but that league folded in 1985 due to financial instability. So they expanded too quickly. They couldn't share enough revenue to keep everybody afloat. Uh, it, it folded. And so America was awarded a World Cup without a top flight league. Now, in creating a top flight league, uh, they did their due diligence looking to the rest of the world to try to find out, can we, can we do this? Can we implement ProRel? There are articles that show there was an attempt to at least investigate the possibility of a ProRel type pyramid being created from the ground up, because that's what it was at the time. It was from the ground up. You had no structure to work from. You didn't have hundreds of years of history like Europe did. It was a blank slate. So as a blank slate, your concerns of financial instability go to how to protect against that. And so they look to one of the biggest sports leagues in the world, one of the biggest at the time in America, the NFL, to take their notes. A lot of the owners at the time, the few that they had, came from the NFL world with that experience. MLS was founded as a single entity league, which basically means that the league itself can control all of the players, the hiring, the costs, the revenue, and owners, as we think of them in other sports leagues, don't exist in MLS. They're investor operators. So they buy into the league, and they're, they're licensed to run a team out of a, a city, essentially. So when you're awarded a new franchise from owners that uh, will pay an expansion fee, those expansion fees are buying their way into MLS so that they can operate a team in that city. So everything we talk about today, because of that structure, is dealing with the league as the, the entity who's paying the players, who are creating all of these acquisition rules on how to bring players into MLS, what are the different rules? Um, and because of that, the league has been able to maintain a level of financial stability. So there were some dark points in the league in the early 2000s where mm -hmm. Tampa Bay and Miami folded. And it was two owners owned seven of the 10 teams. Things got bleak. So this structure is disconnected from the entirety of the footballing world. It's disconnected from American sports. But slowly but surely, they rose out of it. They got to a point in 2007 where David Beckham wanted to come to MLS. They were able to lure him to MLS. And so then you start to see the beginnings of what we're talking about now, the designated player rule introduced as the David Beckham rule. And you, you kind of start to see that shift in mindset of 
it's not just an act. It's not just um, a, a circus show or anything like that, but you're seeing real growth, um, noticeable and consistent. So Beckham. No, I was just going to say, like, before we go too far into that, I mean, a lot of times just quickly to say that the single entity thing seems to be tends to be viewed as like the evil part of MLS mm-hmm. and and yep. and creating basically a league that seems to care most about ownership stability, which as a fan, you tend to, if you're a nerdy fan like me, I tend to like think. Well, this league's really only catering to owners. Like they don't care about the fans. They don't care about the competition level. They don't compare. They don't care like to some degree about the men's national team. You'll think all these things, but it's really important despite the truth or falseness of those thoughts that the reason they did this was because it was dark and unstable. Teams were starting and folding immediately. It was bad. Soccer in the United States was bad. And the main problem was ownership stability. And so, like, the reason it's built around that is it wouldn't exist at all. No teams would live to this current age without some kind of stability. And even the USL has realized that. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to make sure we we fully set the table there that um, it was really, really, really bad. Um, and now it's not just like an okay league. It's a, it's a flourishing league, good or bad. And, and we'll talk about the rules to, to help you decide whether that's all good or bad. And, and the good and bad is only possible to be talked about because the league still exists. Yeah, right. And, and, and every time I have the opportunity, I'll, I'll tell people that the league exists because of the rules that we've come to hate. So yes, there should always be growth. There should always be um, an understanding and a realization that you do have to pivot and there, there are inflection points of which Beckham was one of them that have to drive change and how seismic will that change be? And that's, what the, that- and that's what the DP rule is all about too. Yes. Cause it wasn't, you know, it did start with that, but now it's also like, how quickly can we grow? And a lot of those reasons that we're able to quickly grow is like the DP rule you're about to talk about and other like, you know, artificial things that can grow a league, um, through rules and exceptions to spending and things like that. Um, so not only is it alive today, but it's, it's giant because of all of these things we're going to talk about, but that does leave it, lead us to this David Beckham rule. Thanks for letting me interrupt. (laughs) For sure. And, and you really do have to compare it to some of the other sports leagues in America when you're talking about the salary cap, the roster Mm. rules in that we haven't been around since 1920, like the NFL, 1903, like major league baseball, uh, even in the NHL has been around since 1917. You know, they they have had the time to grow. And as quickly as we want MLS to grow, uh, there's a push and pull between ownership even right now of the owners from the old guard who they're just happy to, that the league's still in existence. They don't want to have to pay more to compete. They like the parity that exists in MLS through all of these rules. And the Beckham rule was that inflection point where you start to see the rubber band effect. You're seeing some teams like the Galaxy who want to splash cash to compete and buy championships or put as much talent as to, no matter what it costs on the field. And then you have some other owners who have been around since the very beginning who have the opposite perspective. So, so a lot of the things that we're doing now are trying to pull those old owners into the future. Arthur Blank's a perfect example with Atlanta United who wants to move MLS into the future of spending and be competitive with the world. So as you as you get that ownership shift, you get these new expansion teams in who want to splash cash, 
you're you're able to kind of move the needle meaningfully. And so you're starting to see, uh, especially in the past few years, MLS is becoming a selling league. And so it's not just having good players on the field. It's not just bringing in retired Premier League players. It's shifting into developing young players. It's shifting into selling players. And all of that plays into these roster rules. The, the stat that I have is from the past three years, MLS has averaged over 16 players sold per year. And the previous five before that, they only averaged seven a year. And so we're seeing these rules that we're going to talk about in just a minute are rewarding those teams who develop and sell players. Uh, you bring in younger players, they're less of a hit to your salary cap. Mm-hmm. You sell players, you're getting to keep more of that money versus what the league is kind of taking as like a finder's fee sort of a thing. And so as we as we shift into what St. Louis City is going to be a part of, um, the the nature of MLS has changed so significantly from what it was that it's not just stable, but it's rewarding a lot of the things that Lutz has talked about, developing young players, sending them to Europe. The teams are incentivized to do it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the rules that we're about to talk to speak directly to that. So yeah, I cut you off right around David Beckham, somewhere around there. <laughs> Did I let you get the DP rule out all the way? Yeah, no, the well, we'll get into what the DP rule is, but it was basically caused by David Beckham to allow players who were way more expensive to come into the league, but still keep all those existing rules. That is the epitome of the push and pull that we described, where, sure, you're not changing any foundational rules, but you're adding on one here and one there <laughs> to allow that additional spending. It's why we're going to get into the fact that in 2023, MLS has a salary cap per team of $5.2 million but a soft cap of 10 million, meaning you have mechanisms that exist in this league that allow you to spend almost double what your proclaimed salary cap Mm -hmm. is. So that, that epitomizes the push and pull and it really gets into your kind of adding on, uh, you're, you're putting band-aids on the problem. You're adding on little, Mm -hmm. little things here to allow the incremental spending while keeping everybody else happy in the old ways. Absolutely. Yeah, there is definitely a a middle ground, a gray area that they're trying to tread in the middle of while not ignoring, you know, if someone wants to spend the money, they usually try to find a way. Right. (laughs) And I'm sure we'll cover that, too. But, you know, the Beckham one was reverse engineered from the start. Like, hey, he wants to come here. Our cap doesn't allow that. How can we make it work? Thus the DP rule. Right. Exactly. So I think right before we pivot into the first big piece of the actual rules, um, I want to talk through a couple definitions real quick, because we're going to mention a couple terms that consistently aren't going to have any meaning unless you really know what they are. So one of them carries a lot of weight is the term salary budget charge. Hmm. And so the salary cap as we know it, um, and in other sports, you may have a luxury tax where if you go over it, you just have to pay a percentage, but you can go over it as much as you want if you're willing to pay that. We see it all the time with the Yankees, for instance, in Major League Baseball. The salary budget charge is the amount of a player's salary that directly goes towards the salary cap. So the example, and we'll get into the details, but um, the designated players, David Beckham, right? He was making, I think, $6.5 million a year. The only amount that actually went towards the salary cap at the time was around Mm 400000 the max salary for a player. And so you're talking about this, this portion of a player's salary applies to the salary cap. So Beckham on the on the Excel sheet that they keep is taking up 400,000 of the Galaxy's salary cap, but they're actually paying him 6 and a half million dollars a year. And so that's what a salary budget charge is. It's only 
the portion of the player's salary that counts against that uh, hard salary cap. So what happens to the rest? That's where the soft salary cap comes mm-hmm. in. So that's how you're in it. You're allowed to get to this year. Toronto FC uh, had some kind of incredible player spend of uh, I think it was 32 million they spent on their roster. 14 million was on one single yeah. player, Lorenzo <laughs> Insigne. And so that's how they're allowed to spend so much money on their overall roster where you look at they're spending $32 million on their team. I thought the salary cap was 5.2. That's exactly what happened when I saw his salary the other day. Yeah. I was like, what yep. is going on? So salary budget charge is going to come around uh, a few times here in the different types of players that we're going to have. Um, another is allocation money. So that's the other piece of how you can get from a $5.2 million salary cap to around $10 million um, uh, soft cap, not even counting the full DP salaries. So allocation money you can spend, and they, we call them Garber bucks a lot because it's really money that only exists in the ecosystem of MLS. And it, it, it is traded. It is, we'll get into the details, but that's the other big thing is allocation money. And it's, it's monopoly money that exists in the league, but there are different types of money, allocation money Mm -hmm. that really will uh, impact especially how St. Louis city roster builds, but how every team uh, constructs their roster and it has to be used wisely. This is, this isn't something that like, if you want to take part in it, you can No, this is absolutely vital to understand and get right. If you want to construct a good roster. Is it too early for you to describe the different kinds of allocation money? No, we can, we can do that if you want real quick. Yeah, um, Cause I don't know we, the difference between gam and Tam. Yeah, no, let's go for it. So, um, there are so there's two different types of allocation money right now, um, and both types are made available to clubs in fixed amounts each year. So there's general allocation money and there's targeted allocation money. Uh, general allocation money is an amount that each club receives every year. So in 2023, every team receives one point will receive 1.9 million dollars in GAM. It can be used in a wide variety, but the the tricky part to think through here is. Like we said earlier, not everything is cut and dry with MLS, and definitely not everything is transparent. One of the big problems with uh, allocation money in general is in the roster rules, there's a little caveat that says, and I quote, to protect the interests of MLS and its clubs during discussions with prospective players or clubs in other leagues, amounts of allocation money currently held by each club will not be shared publicly. Only in the case of a trade will the amount of general allocation money involved be made public. Hmm. So we know how much uh, a club will get each year because it's fixed. We know, we, we know now how much an expansion club gets, which is around a million dollars in GAM. But there are also ways in which a team may receive uh, general allocation money elsewhere. A failure to qualify for the MLS Cup playoffs will earn you general allocation money, kind of rewarding teams uh, and incentivizing them to get better by failing to reach the playoffs. <laughs> Uh, you transfer players out of MLS, you get a portion of GAM from that transfer sale. You qualify for CONCACAF Champions League, you win CONCACAF Champions League, you get some GAM. Mm. Expansion clubs, like I said, get some GAM. Even expansion dilution gets you GAM. So there are other teams who are getting a small percentage of GAM because St. Louis City's entering the league. Interesting. So GAM can be traded, GAM can be spent to in, in a lot of different ways, uh, but we never really know the full extent, especially teams that have been in the league for a long time, how much game they have. It feels it's very, it feels very Oprah. Like everybody gets, you get some, you get some, but it also is like 
also why you hear the word, the phrase like MLS funny money, like that yes. statement about we will not disclose what it's yes. used for or how that's very interesting. There are, there's one big way that allocation money in general is used. Um, we'll get to Tam in just a second, but allocation money in general can be used to buy down a player's budget or salary budget charge uh, while you're managing that mm. roster. So, so the hard you, salary cap hit. Yeah. So, so when you see the MLSPA report that a player is making uh, $400,000, that is not necessarily how much that player counts against your salary cap. Mm. Same with uh, players who are like Roman Berkey, who's making well over the maximum of what will be 651250 Uh Allocation money is being used to buy him down to fit into the roster requirements. Hmm. So, for example, a club may buy down a player who earns 700000 to a salary budget charge of only 500000 meaning that 500000 is what counts against the $5.2 million salary cap if they use 200000 of their general allocation money. It could also be applied to sign new players to MLS. So if you're bringing in a player, you can uh, spend some GAM uh, as part of to offset a transfer fee. Uh, you can re-sign a player by using GAM. You can extend a player's contract with GAM. Uh, you can reduce different salary budget charges of a designated player, um, any other type of player that we're going to talk about using GAM. Hmm. So it's very valuable to allow you to sign higher paid players and fit them into the mold of your salary cap. I do have a question. When you buy down that stuff, that hard, that that salary or acquisition fee, trans, uh, oh my gosh, transfer fee, sorry. Does that money go to the soft salary cap? Do you know? Or does it disappear? So the soft salary cap is one of those like figments of your imagination. <laughs> and it only exists because we know how much GAM and TAM estimated a team will have. And so we know what teams' abilities are to offset their hard salary cap price. Mm. And so once, and it, it, it's really, you can look at it like what the MLSPA reports. Think of it like you have a full list of that. If you add all of that up, that is more or less what your soft salary cap-ish is. And so averaging that out between all the teams, you, you figure that taking DPs out of the equation because DPs are unlimited money. Hmm. But is there so, a soft salary cap limit? There is, right? Oh, oh, there is. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where targeted allocation money kind of really comes into play. Okay. So general allocation money is very flexible. You can use it on just about any player. You can use it on a player like uh, Tomas Ostrak, who's making below the uh, league maximum, but you can still use GAM on his salary to offset that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you're not taking up all of his salary against the hard cap. Targeted allocation money is very different. And it's also being phased out in a way by MLS because it is less flexible. Uh, whereas GAM right now is on the rise each year in how much a team gets. Currently, it's at $1.9 million. TAM's on the way down. Last year, in 2022, it was at $2.8 million. This upcoming year, 23, it'll be $2.72 million. And so each club may use those funds to sign a new player as long as that player's salary and acquisition costs are more than the maximum salary budget charge. So that's why we say that a player like Roman Berkey is on a max TAM deal because you can you can use his salary that is so much more than the league maximum to buy him down. You can't use TAM on Tomas Ostra mm. because he doesn't make the league maximum. You can't buy him down Interesting. Uh, to less than that. Now, the biggest thing about targeted allocation money 
is that there is a ceiling to which you can apply that to a player. And the other half of Roman Berkey's max TAM deal is he's making around uh, $1.65 million for 2023, or at least in 22 he did. And so that's what his salary is, about $1.65. The maximum you can use TAM on a player is $1 million over the salary cap for a single player, which is 651250 So the max TAM would be if a player is making $1.65 million, then you can buy him down using TAM to at or below the maximum individual salary, ensuring that he doesn't have to qualify as a designated player. Hmm. Because designated players are really those who their salary is just so high or it's somewhere over the max salary, and you're not, you're not spending the money to buy him down below that max salary or to it. And so you're reporting that on our salary, uh, this player would cost $14 million. We have no way of buying him down to that max individual salary. So TAM can be very useful in those um, higher echelon players who you're signing to a million-dollar contract. It's similar to uh, how we were discussing Jacques Klaus and Edward Leuven, where their salaries indicate that they could be bought down. But part of the overall player salary in MLS is that you bake in the transfer fees. Mm -hmm. And so Roman Berkey, we got on a free. All we have to think about is his salary that he's being received. Klaus and Leuven had transfer fees that took them over the $1.65 million threshold. We couldn't buy them down. It's not possible based on the max TAM you can apply to a single player. Okay, got it. That was a great example because I was a little iffy until you mentioned exactly how those things work. So it's not just salary. It's also the transfer fee, too. So the TAM can be applied to the transfer fee as well, do you know? Exactly, it can. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah, and, and that's why we made such a big deal in St. Louis about getting Berkey on a free. Yeah, I, I, I fully believe I fully believe he wouldn't be here if it weren't on a free. We would not have spent a DP slot on a keeper, mm-hmm. and and those other free uh, free acquisitions by loots that is all part of what is get what gets applied to the salary charge. And if you want to offset uh, a transfer fee, you spend gam. So being able to uh, not have to spend all of that different type of allocation money on those players is huge. It, it keeps you flexible. And Ostrak, too, was highly regarded in the Bundesliga, especially by Cologne. And so, like, that's, yeah, people don't play up that enough that we've saved a lot of money on him. I mean, we'll see talent in MLS. Will that pay off? We have yet to see. But still, it's it should be said in a in a St. Louis City podcast that that's how we feel about it. For sure. And there are other ways that you can. Uh, spend TAM or GAM, and there are other ways that it can apply to types of users. For instance, clubs can use up to $200,000 of targeted allocation money to sign new homegrown players to their first MLS contract. Mm. So there are different ways that exist in the roster rules that you can apply certain amounts of money to types of players uh, to help offset costs or to pay them more to come or to sign a contract. Mm-hmm. So homegrowns, um, you 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 can you know, some some of the young DPS some of the U twenty ones there are different ways that you can pay them more, uh, but not affect the salary cap. And, and a couple of things I wanted to say too is it, it does get this vibe that GAM is kind of for the middling players, the upper middle class, if you will, and that TAM is going to be for a lot of those higher end players or just below the DP level kind of players in order to buy them down to be in that same group. And and a big thing that um, I will always remember because 
there are a few things, especially lately. I heard about something Vermes was pushing for in the league. Um, Tam and Gam came out around the same time. People started mentioning people like Vermes was trying to build a team where he could like legally inside MLS's rules pay his like, you know, guys. I don't know. Not the top four players, but like players five through 12, right? That he could give them more salary and he just did not have the space to do it. And so Tam and Gam kind of came around because I think a few maybe owners and coaches or GMs were looking to do that. And it was a good thing to grow the league to have some of these really quality players who probably might be able to start making about more in Europe make a good wage inside of the United States soccer system. And I don't know. I just really respect that that happened, that Gam and Tam was the response to that. It wasn't opening the gates like maybe they could have, that maybe I would have liked them to. But, you know, they're still trying to make sure that they don't lose. They're still trying to bring in more owners. They're still trying to protect the owners that they have. They don't want anyone going bankrupt inside of their their league. It would be terrible or folding or anything like that. So anyway, that was one thing I really liked about Game & Tam, that it was another Band-Aid or a step in in the right direction for that reason. And you're seeing the, the the players negotiate more towards GAM as well. So that's all part of the mm. CBA is this shift in more GAM, less TAM. And so as more GAM enters the league, there's flexibility in how you can spend it. So everything we described about TAM, you can use GAM with as well, mm-hmm. really. And so you're, you are targeting those kind of lower end players in a sense that you have flexibility to use it because you can't use TAM, remember, unless a player makes more than the maximum salary. So it's just it's not possible to use them on those lower players. Super cool. The Players Association looking out for the guys toward the middle and bottom, you know, of the league. They're the ones that need protection. When we saw the USLPA come along, they were putting like floors on the bare minimum that you're allowed to pay players. And we all know that there were guys practically not getting paid, just getting room and board and having families and doing stuff like that. So, you know, this is something that continually these two player associations uh, making the right moves for their players. Good stuff. Yeah, and on on the GAM note, too, uh, I mentioned that you can trade GAM. That's probably going to come in to play pretty quickly for St. Louis City. I also mentioned that City gets an additional million dollars or so of GAM as an expansion team. We've seen GAM be traded like it like there are baseball trading cards, honestly. Hmm. Uh, there's so much GAM in the system now, and you'll see that in a lot of articles on The Athletic and elsewhere. Uh, the, the MLS ecosystem is inundated with GAM, and so you're seeing uh, markets adjust appropriately so paul Ariola, who was traded just recently i think he went for two million dollars in gam and so it was fc dallas paying uh, dc united i believe just two million dollars in gam so there was a gam bidding war for these players uh kellen acosta i think was in a similar situation where he was traded for gam and so you're seeing these national team level players who are being almost exclusively acquired by gam inside the league so when we look ahead for St. Louis City of the expansion draft, the mm-hmm. super draft, that we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute, but GAM is the reason that we're going to be doing a lot of the wheeling and dealing. It's, it's how we're going to be sending certain things. And so you look at markets to see if we got a good or a bad deal. You look at players like Kellen Costa, Paul Ariola. You also look at international slots. How expensive are those? Because we'll talk about what those are in a minute, but those get traded all the time. And there is usually a fixed market at this point. It's around $250,000. So things are happening with GAM on the regular 
that if you don't really know what it is, how much we have, or even some semblance of a history of what it's been used for, you can't really compare it to know if we're making a good deal or a bad deal. Absolutely. Matt, I've thrown off your beautiful, beautiful outline here. I skipped us ahead. Where do you want to go to next? Because we, you know, I'm seeing a lot of I awesome honestly, different... I honestly love that we started that because we were talking about should we start with one of the big hitters or should we leave it for near the end? And I like starting with that because knowing all of that kind of sets the the playing field a little bit. But let's let's look at the overall roster makeup. Yes, that's what I was thinking, too. So Major League Soccer's clubs are comprised of up to 30 players, up to 30 players maximum. Um, All 30 players eligible for selection on game day. But it's it's kind of divided into a senior roster and a supplemental roster. So the senior roster are players one through 20. A team may sign up to 20. They only have to sign 18. And this is where the, the salary budget comes into play. Only the first 20 players are applied towards the team's salary budget. Hmm. The supplemental roster has a lot of different types of players that will, will be put there. Uh, but because they're making minimum salaries because they're homegrown, super draft players, whatever, then they're in a separate category. So there's a senior roster that exists. That's where our players, like all of our international players, uh, we assume Josh Yarrow is going to be on there, but we haven't had any confirmation about Yarrow, Hebert, or Max or Celio at this point. Uh, But we know that the first 20 players apply to that $5.2 million salary budget for 23. This is referred to as the team's senior roster. Uh, clubs are not required to fill roster slots 19 and 20. They can spend their entire salary budget and related gam and tam on the 18 players if they want. Um, and a team may have no more than 20. And along with this, the maximum salary budget charge for a single player on this one through 20 senior roster is in 2023, $651,250. To clarify, again, that's not how much a player will be paid. That's how much their salary can go against the the salary cap as the salary budget charge. So anything over that is when you're not allowed to use GAM or TAM. Yeah. Is that what, well, no, am I mixing rules? You're mixing rules. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like it though. So, $651,250 651250 is the maximum salary budget charge. That's that's the max salary a single player can be paid okay. unless you use any one of these other mechanisms. So you can use GAM above that. Um, you can use TAM above that. TAM, you can't use below that. Below it. Thank you. Got it. Yeah. I'm on board. But that is the number you were referring to earlier about, yes, got it. Yep. Thank you. Yep. So all the other players that will be signed and some that probably already have been signed, uh, if MLSPA's reporting is correct, uh, Max and Max Schneider and Celio Pompeu from City 2 have been signed to the supplemental roster. Mm-hmm. So the supplemental rosters, those roster slots 21 through 30, do not count towards the club salary budget. And they include players um, who are on minimum salaries, who are homegrown players, Generation Adidas players, uh, any eligible super draft players. Um, it, it just fits rounds out the roster. If you're a Cardinals fan, maybe this is similar to the 40 man roster that opens up pretty close, pretty close with the, with the exception that all 30 players are eligible for selection on any given game day. It's almost but there like, are. Yeah. What month is it like September that you can use anyone? On yes, the court? Yeah. That's yes. That is a, that is a great comparison is that the 30, 
the 30 roster senior and supplemental can be compared to a September 40 man. Mm-hmm. Very nice. So slots 21 through 24, there are designations for each one of these slots, 21 through 24 filled with the senior minimum salary players who right now is at $84,000. So that's the senior minimum salary. You've been in MLS for a while. You're making the senior minimum. Uh, you can also include homegrown players, generation Adidas in this, in these slots. And it really all has to do with, those who have a base salary at least 84000 with the senior minimum. That's for slots 21 through 24. Mm-hmm. 25 through 28 are earning the reserve minimum salary, which last year was 65500 So significantly less. That's where that's where the MLSPA has Max Schneider and Celio Pompeu slotted is 655. So the assumption is that they're filling out slots 25 through 28 right now, uh, which may also include homegrown players. So we have right now, it seems two slots available for city in, in here and the reserve minimum salary players must be 24 years or younger during the league year. It cannot be filled with players who are making the senior minimum that 84,000. So it has to be these earning at least 65, five. And 29 through 30, so the last little bit of the roster, mm-hmm. must be filled with homegrown players earning the reserve minimum salary, 65.5. Or they can be earning a little more, but it has to be filled with homegrown players. So you won't find anything else in 29 through 30 other than homegrowns. Interesting. Very cool. So homegrowns are in all of these supplemental slots, it looks like. One that, yep. uh, I'm sorry if I missed it, but I noticed that Generation Adidas is in the 25 through 28 or the 21 through 28, interestingly. So that'll come around in the Super Draft. We'll talk about that some more, I'm sure. And it really all has to do with how much they're making. So Which I thought there was are, set by Generation Adidas, but I guess not, huh? You can you can play, pay players more, oh. uh, and you, you can use some of these subsidies that they have. So you can apply GamerTam to Generation Adidas player to slot them in to a higher roster slot. I do want. remember Jordan Morris, for some reason, I think he was... A generation Adidas player, or was he a homegrown? He was a homegrown. Never mind. He was a homegrown. That's yep. different. Which actually is next. Are we good to move on to homegrown? Uh, I think we're good to move on to the different player categories. Yeah. Oh, okay. The only other the only other thing to note here is there are subsidies that can be given to homegrown players. So I mentioned earlier, TAM can be applied to uh, players that are different categories. Well, this is one of those things where uh, clubs can use up to two hundred thousand of targeted allocation money to sign new homegrown players. Like I mentioned to their first MLS contract. Mm-hmm. So so those those can be applied then to put them in certain roster slots on the supplemental roster, uh, but specific rules are are listed out so that homegrown players can be subsidized. Cool. I think we're going to move on to uh, the different player categories, which do include homegrown players. So this is also a, uh, a soft spot for St. Louis City right now. Um, soft spot with love because we love our players. <laughs> but there are def- different distinctions for domestic and international players with MLS. So it also is a different distinction for U.S.-based and Canadian-based clubs. With U.S.-based clubs, a domestic player is either a U.S. citizen, permanent resident who has a green card, uh, or a holder of a certain other special status, a refugee, asylum status, um, or a player who qualifies under the homegrown international rule, which, ba- which basically just says that uh, it's an international player who's in your academy and they qualify through homegrown. So yes, they're international, but they're also homegrown and homegrown kind of makes them domestic. That's all that really means. 
What's weird Canadian. is I'm not seeing like a minimum amount of time they have to spend in your academy. I'm sure that's out there, but home homegrowns are. Yeah, yeah. Home, homegrowns. Even if you're do. an international player, that's the no. Problem. Yeah. yeah. So Canadian-based clubs are pretty much the same, except for there is a, a minimum number of Canadian domestic players that have to be on their rosters. It's three. So Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto all have to have at least three Canadian domestic players on the roster at all times. Nice. So we went over the homegrown international rule and, and how that really uh, backdoors you into a domestic player slot. International players are where things really start to get um, your ears have to perk, especially as a St. Louis City fan. So in 2022, there were a total of 224 international roster slots divided among the 28 clubs. Averages out to be about eight per team. Uh, they're ex- expected to be more in 23 for St. Louis City. It's always kind of grown with eight over the past few years. So there's not going to be any more, any less. It's always expected to be eight. St. Louis City currently has, uh, depending on where you're looking, seven or eight currently signed to their roster. And a potential <laughs> other roster signing is coming in December. If uh, Rasmus Alm comes to fruition. So you, so all of these international spots can be taken up. International spots can also be traded. And so you have an opportunity to spend some of that game that I mentioned to trade for an inter- international slot, giving you for that year uh, an extra, or you could trade one away if you only have seven. There's flexibility in what you do with that. Um, but the big thing is that all of these international slots reset at the end of the year. Mm. And so you really have to think through, okay, are you working on signing your player to a long-term deal and they're going to take up an international slot and you're okay with that? Are you going to try to get a player a green card to convert them to domestic status in the next year? You know, what's your long-term plan because it's going to affect you in more than just when you sign the player. You're, and and it will also remove flexibility uh in the pre, in the next subsequent years if you're already loaded with your full complement of international players after year one, and you don't have any way to move them. Hmm. The green card thing is very interesting. Do we know much about like that process? Do we talk about it today? Should we talk about it another day? I mean, we could, uh, I, it would probably be smart to get somebody on like, uh, our friend Mario from the shoot boys who actually <laughs> specializes in this. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. We're saving right? it then. I, I think it'd be fun to, to know stuff. the uh, the specifics. But yeah, no, St. Louis City has on retainer uh, a law firm that specializes in this as well. So if they have a, a need or um, a desire to convert somebody who's going to be with us long term, I'm sure that they're on top of it. Yeah, which we knew that. Now, we knew about him from the very beginning. So like, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. So one of the more and so we're about to get into a couple of the really big player designations, player categories. Um, we've gone through the domestic, we've gone through international homegrown players is next. So players signed through the homegrown mechanism are going to be, be designated as a homegrown player on their roster. So what does that mean? Um, that means that a player has been signed to a contract without them needing to go through the MLS super draft. Uh, they've been a member of the club's youth Academy for at least one year and have met the necessary training and retention requirements. So training and retention requirements can be vague, and I'm sure that is subject to whatever the league specifies if a team makes a case. But the thing that really uh, jumps out to me here is a player has been a member of the youth's academy or the club's youth academy for at least one year. And knowing that there's no limit to the number of homegrown players a club may sign in any given year, the homegrown players can occupy a spot on the senior or supplemental, depending on you know some of these how much you're going to pay them type of thing. 
players on the supplemental roster may earn in aggregate each year up to 125,000 above the minimum reserve salary or the senior minimum salary. And so there are ways you can use your gam on this. You can you can pay a player uh, more to sign with your club straight out of the academy. And honestly, you th- you think of it as why would you pay a player more uh, if they're homegrown? They're just fresh out of the academy. You know what what incentive is there? Speaking locally here, it seems like the incentive is you're convincing these kids to turn pro rather than go to college. That's a big incentive right there. Mm-hmm. So you're needing to show your commitment to them if nothing else. And so MLS roster rules allow for mechanisms to pay players a significant amount of money when they're potentially 15, 16, 17 years old. And that was the Jordan Morris thing where they were trying to get him to leave college and homegrown signings were new. I think it was in the second year or something like that. And he was by far the the highest paid homegrown player. And they got him straight out of strand, uh, early out of Stanford. Um, and so, yeah, you pay someone like Jordan Morris a lot of money for that reason. Exactly. Exactly. And so the other type of young player designation is Generation Adidas. And that is also going to directly impact St. Louis City. So Generation Adidas is a joint program between MLS and Adidas that's dedicated to, and I'm just reading from what, what it is, <laughs> developing exceptional talent in a professional environment. Each year, a handful of top collegiate underclassmen and youth national team players are signed by the league with the majority of those players entering the league through the super draft. Until the end of the guaranteed term of the contract is up, uh, which can be up to three years, Generation Adidas players are on the club's supplemental roster. So Jack Mayer, obvious local um, Generation Adidas recent player. Generation Adidas players are oftentimes um, designated in early December, I believe, but before the, the Super Draft occurs. And so you'll know the, the pool of players that will be Generation Adidas, and that's important for St. Louis City because it's almost guaranteed that City is going to sign one of these Generation Adidas players. Mm-hmm. They, they are on guaranteed contracts. There are uh, roster advantages, like we just mentioned, to signing them. They don't take up. Uh, a lot of those big money slots. And honestly, the fact that they're on the supplemental roster, they don't hit the salary cap at all. So if you remember, the senior roster are the only ones that take up that salary cap space. This is it's a free card. Mm-hmm. And you're getting... So Jack Mayer with Nashville right now, seeing how integral he is to that team after after a year, even at, at the end of that first year, uh, after he was on loan, he started to really get some playing time in. That's a, That's free money for Nashville. They're not paying him anything against the salary cap. Yeah, that's the kind of value that these players are going to provide. And that's why it's important to really hit on one um, similar to what Austin and Charlotte tried to do this, these past few years. You know, I was talking to the fan van account. I'm not sure which one I was talking to, but they were asking that question. I got a little bit of it wrong, but most of it right in that it doesn't hit the cap. Um, three years guaranteed and then two mm-hmm. options. So yep. up to five years is, is another big part of that. But those are, yeah, massive help there. And we could get more than one generation Adidas player in one super draft. It could happen, especially as an expansion team. You could always trade super draft roster spots too. That's right. There's yeah. And there's a lot of trading that can happen with Gam and Tam <laughs> and international spots. So those homegrowns and generation Adidas, those are fun. Um, designated players are the sexy one. And so that's next designated player rule, which has been nicknamed and aptly the David Beckham rule allows a club to acquire up to, currently in the roster rules, up to three players whose total compensation and acquisition costs exceed the maximum salary budget charge, which is 651250 
the club bearing financial responsibility for the amount of compensation above each player's salary budget charge. So this is interesting to me, and I never really thought of it until I really started digging into it um, too hard. But the players' contracts are with the league and not the individual teams. And so when you think about the, the, the maximum salary and you think about designated players being paid so much higher, um, this really caught my eye is that the players' contracts being with the league, owner investors pay into it with, within the salary cap framework. Toronto, for, for example, who's paying Lorenzo Insigne $14 million a year, all but $651,000 651, of that is coming out of the owner's pockets not anything that the the league has already arranged to pay for with that contract. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's really, it really speaks to the teams who have a desire to spend, to compete in what they're willing to spend. And it's a little unfortunate in some ways, because as you'll hear uh, Sam Stasekel and Paul Tenorio talk all the time, it, it really limits the, uh, the money that you can spend to up to three players and that's why you see some of the clubs like Toronto end up where the top three of their the top top three players take up sixty seven percent of their team salary, which is an absolute absurd amount. Insigne himself takes up forty three percent, and he is a, he's an outlier. Admittedly, fourteen million for a single player is breaking the bank for MLS. Breaking a but record. Seeing, exactly, but you're seeing significant teams. Just about every single team. Uh, their top five players take up about 50% of their roster. Mm -hmm. And it's because of designated players. And this is where it goes against what Vermees wanted, right? You know, people look at these rosters and, and they see numbers like that. And it just is like three players make this much and it's ungodly. And then like, you know, 15 make this much, which is okay. But in comparison is pennies, right? And exactly. it doesn't feel equitable. It feels, I don't know. It feels very, I, what I some people would blame like the American capitalist, whatever problems that we have, it feels like yeah. that in, in, a, in a league. <laughs> it does. But to me, this rule, if, if there's ever a single thing to point out in these roster rules that really um, just touts the difference between what was and what is and what's going to be. It's the designated player rule. Mm -hmm. It is just a, a, a small window of opportunity for those who want to spend and bring significant talent into the league, no matter what the cost, yeah. while still placating owners who they don't want to increase the max salary. They don't want to see a blanket $30 million for teams to spend up and down their roster. And so until you get to a point where you either have a minimum of let's say 10 million or a maximum of 30 million to do with as you please. And until you get away yeah. from everything we're talking about tonight, then you're always going to end up with those incredibly top heavy rosters. And that's, it really is the nature of the game. And it's so unique to any other American sport, hmm. let alone the rest of the footballing world. Yeah. And, and you can see it in a lot of ways. I mentioned a negative one, but you know, marketing is a big part of the sustainment of a league. Not only that, if someone wants to win, I mean, that's a great way to try and win. It, it's arguable, it's debatable whether it's effective to spend that much on one player um, compared to, you know, what you get out of another player for, you know, one tenth of it. Um, that's a fun debate, too, honestly, to have in MLS, which is also um, just our league kind of a conversation. But, um, you know, it, it's not all bad. It's, it's something that elevates the league in multiple ways. Some, some, some of it, some, some fun, some of it not, right? 
it, it really is the thing that elevated the league, though, beyond what we talked about at the very beginning of the 2002 folding of two teams and two owners owning seven out of 10 teams. It, it's the thing that that inflection point that caused the league to seismically shift its approach to bringing in top talent. Mm-hmm. That's And in some ways, it's why MLS earned the designation of a retirement league because <laughs> they were able to bring in those and throw money at just a few select players. And yeah, it, looking back on it, I fully believe that was a stepping stone into what we have now, which is developing younger players, mm-hmm. shifting the focus. But again, as a league who is only 27 years old, you're not going to play by the same rules and you're not going to be born into a world where this league is just running smoothly with a salary cap and you can spend whatever you want. Like it's a very unique way that they approach this. And even the designated player rule is a very unique implementation to bring new players that are stars into the league. But whenever you think about how crazy some of these rules are and why you're creating some of these rules, like a DP, you have to think back about where we were just 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And and if you didn't have these weird mechanisms, you could argue that every team wouldn't come close already in this young phase of the MLS's life. You wouldn't have every single team putting out multi-million dollars on single players, right? Every Mm -hmm. team has at least one or two players that they're spending millions of dollars on. And this is a young league. And, and, you know, a few, we always have the few, like, you know, the New York Cosmos, right. Always had some kind of a ringer that they brought in, but they were the only team that did it for the most part in NASL. So like, that's where we would be as MLS right now, if it weren't for these weird mechanisms. So, um, you know, there's a good example. Um, but it does lead us, you were leading us right into the next thing, if I'm not mistaken, that we haven't talked about. I know nothing. I know everything we've talked about. I generally have an idea of what's going on. Young designated players. I'm totally lost. Is, is this okay to go on to young designated players? Absolutely. Good. So young designated players are a very new mechanism along with the U22 initiatives. And to really understand how that works, you have to know that of the three designated player slots, which have no real limitations to who you can sign. Um, the only, the only thing that, that gets quirky from a, a, a financial reporting perspective is if you sign a third designated player who is over the age of 23, you have to pay $150,000 tax essentially to the league. You pay $150,000 to the league saying, okay, we want to have a third designated player. The young designated player is how you get around that. So a young designated player is 23 years or younger during the league year and they'll carry a very minimal salary charge. I'm talking minuscule compared to that maximum $651,000. If you sign a 20-year-old or younger to a young DP slot, they only take up $150,000. Hmm. If you sign a 21 to 23-year-old, they only take up $200,000. These are, especially when you're thinking about what city could do, p- extremely important and potentially very cost-effective means to bring in top young talent. If you can identify a young player uh, 23 or younger, especially 20 or younger, who is worth his weight in, in whatever you want to pay them, they won't hit the salary cap, but for a fraction. And so if, and, and obviously one of the things with the, the DPs and the young DPs is if you sign a player during that secondary transfer window, mid season, the salaries are halved. So the salary budget charges are halved by each. Um, so there is a, a bit of fair play going on if you sign them midway through the season. Hmm. But just like with uh, with all these other types of players, clubs can buy down the salary budget charge of a DP or a young DP with um, general allocation money. 
So you can, so if the hit is going to be 150, right? But you yeah. can spend more than that as long as you buy it down with GAM. You could spend $15 million on a 22 year old if you were that confident in their abilities and it would only cost you $200,000 against the salary budget. And you don't have to buy that down. Obviously, you couldn't buy that much down. Is there a DP at this point? Yeah, you don't need to worry about okay. buying them down. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yep. Yeah, there, there's, there's no buying down a DP. The only thing you can buy down is to make them not a DP, which is Roman Berkey. And then the so worry Roman, is like the soft cap. Does that apply to the, like the soft cap that you were talking about? No, the soft Anything cap is really, over? no, the soft, the soft cap is, is really nothing to consider. It's just, it is what it is in the sense that whatever you end up with around the 10 million mark is what you'll do. If you take full advantage of your GAM and your TAM and you're smart with all of your financial spending. Okay. So you're able, and it really goes to, you're able to spend you're able to use all of these mechanisms, GAM and TAM, signing a young DP, signing U22s. You're able to use all of this to minimize the salary budget charge so much that your actual salary is two times what you have to report to MLS. Mm -hmm. So, it, I mean, and honestly, that's that's the crux of it, too. So we're, we're about to get into the U22 initiative. But when you're thinking through all these designations and all these uh, GAM and TAM mechanisms to buy down players, that's that's the the reason for it all is to get around the the salary cap of 5.2 million for 2023 and the soft cap is if you're efficient and you're able to do all of these things and apply all these things to the players you sign you'll end up with a roster except for your dps because they're so much more of around 10 million dollars cumulatively so it's the soft cap isn't anything to really think about. I have to I'm bumping up against this. I should be worried. It's just what you're you will work your way up to if you're efficient in how you're signing players and spending GAM to maximize your salary budget spend. So has anyone hit the maximum? Because you said there's a maximum soft cap, right? Like you're not allowed to spend too much. Has anyone had this problem? No, the average is around ten. That's that's just what it is. Um, there are so you can so you can be limited though, right? Or are you unlimited? No, you're really well. You're only limited by the amount of gam and tam you have. Got it. So the soft cap isn't a number that you're that is a, like a cap. It's not like you have to stop buying things down at this number. It's just Correct. like it's just like a reported. This is how much you've bought down and used your money smartly. It's just Correct. a report. Yeah, exactly. Basically, you can think of the soft cap as what would happen if you removed the designated player salaries from your overall roster spend. Yeah. And what you have left over that actual players are making, that's your soft cap. So I that's really that's really what you're spending on players. Good. I was thinking that there was a limit to how much you could buy down, and that was what the soft cap was. It's not. It's just like this is how much you've bought down. You've been smart. This is the number that you were spending. This is the number that MLS cares about, which is the hard. Yeah. And, and GAM and TAM is not unlimited. We talked about you get 1.9 million a year for GAM. You get that 2.72 million for TAM. That's what enables the soft cap to be reached. Mm -hmm. Got it. So with the young DP kind of covered and understanding that you can have a young DP, if you have two designated players, then you can sign the young DP to a significantly less uh, max salary budget charge. There also was created a couple of years ago, uh, something called a U22 initiative. And this is what really epitomizes the whole shift from the MLS as a retirement league mantra to MLS focusing on 
signing, developing, and selling off young talent. So along with how a young DP can reward a team for signing a younger player to um, a higher contract by not costing them much against the salary cap, U22 initiatives are three slots that each MLS team has that will each occupy one of the 20 existing senior roster slots. The number of these slots available to each team does impact and is based on what that third designated player slot does. So the different criteria or examples are if a club has a vacant third DP slot, which currently city does, the club will have three available U 22 initiative slots. If a club does sign a third designated player, then the number of U 22 initiative slots are impacted in a couple different ways. If the third DP is a young DP, the club gets all three of their U 22s again, rewarding a club for signing younger players. If the third DP slot is 24 or older, or is being bought down with targeted allocation money, the club can still have all three U-22s. Hmm. If the third DP is 24 or older and above the max TAM amount, $1.65 million, the club only gets one U-22 initiative slot. Hmm. So basically saying, if you're spending all of your DP slots on older players, over 24, and they're well above one65 then we're not going to reward you with these three U22 slots. We're only going to give you one of them. All right. So tell me, what is a U22 initiative roster slot? So the U22s, a player has to be uh, 22 or younger in their first year to play. Um, The contract is a player is eligible to occupy that with his first MLS contract as long as they meet the age requirements. Hmm. And a player's... Uh, a player's max salary may not exceed the maximum budget charge uh, on any given on any of the given contracts, and on a second contract, he can earn up to two hundred thousand dollars. So, the the way that the salary budget charge applies to them is very very similar to how the young DP slot is. So, a player who occupies a U twenty two initiative on that senior roster will only have a salary budget charge. That is $150,000 if you're 20 or younger and 200000 if you're age 21 through 25. Hmm. So very, very closely mirrors what a young DP is. Now, it includes up to 25 because you can be on your contract when you're that age 22. Uh, and you could be on that contract up until you're 25 and still receive the benefits of that U22 initiative slot. So they call it a U22 initiative because they're very specific about that age and they're more or less relying on the young DP slot to trigger what you can do with it. But you could also think about it as three additional designated player slots for, for a a U 22. So some examples of how this could play out. So St. Louis city right now has signed two designated players. So we are currently in that, that gray area of, we haven't signed a third DP. If we were to sign a third DP as a young DP, so 23 or younger, who gets that benefit of the 150 or $200,000 roster hit, then we're eligible for three U22 slots. And now you're talking about six of our roster slots could potentially be unlimited salary that only have very specific charges. So your two DPs charge 651000 and then the young DP max of 200000 and the U22s, a max of 200000 So this is how you can really maximize 
and make your roster makeup the most efficient if you're able to identify and sign players who meet these age requirements. Again, directly going to the point of MLS trying to sign and develop young talent. It's interesting. So I'm trying to reread this in enough time to, to find the answer. It, are you allowed to pay them more than 150 or 200,000 depending on their age? The player's salary may not exceed the maximum salary budget charge. And so what that means is that this actual salary for the player can't be over 651,000. Oh, right, 650. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Got it. And then all that applies to the salary, so the salary budget charge would be 150 or 200,000. There is one other sentence in here. It says a homegrown or super draft player in his second contract may earn up to 200,000 above that max. So they could make up to about 850,000. So man, that would be like Jack Mayer might fit into that slot in the next year. Actually, could be. that's interesting. Could be. If a player from college gets so good that he could be almost a DP level player, you could get a killing. You could make a killing on saving your money there. That'd be interesting. Exactly. Exactly. And if they do like a homegrown or super draft player, uh, similar to these U 22s, if they do get a second contract that has them earning over 651,000, they're going to have to be bought down so that they're not a DP. So you're going to have to game, but it's not that much gam. If you really think about it no. on a player of that caliber. And that's the big one is like how much gam you get. You probably got to be careful because you're like, oh, gam will cover it. Gam will cover it. Gam will cover it. And then you're like, I'm out. You know, I could see that being right. a problem. Uh, but I'm thinking of someone like Daryl DK, if he had stayed with Orlando and had stayed on the streak that he was on, dude could have ended up on this. You know what I mean? That's that's super yep. interesting. Exactly. If he was willing to take 850, I wonder if his agent would take 850 or if he'd want DP money. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, it's one one of those. Ferreira's on DP money now. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, so there there's some other things with the U22s. Like there are incentives when you transfer a U22 player outside of the league. So you you're able to take full advantage. 100 of the proceeds of that sale go to the club, and they can be converted to general allocation money. So this this is an example of you you sign, you develop, you sell a player, and then you get the money back. But let's say you get and there there's a sliding scale for this as well. So if you if you sell a player for 2.5 million, you can convert 1.05 of that to GAM. So you get not just a million and a half back, but you can convert another million plus to GAM and use that in the MLS ecosystem to sign players, to buy down other parts of your roster, to do all that flexible stuff you can with GAM. So your MLS is incentivizing teams not just for signing U22s, but also to sell those on by by further uh, increasing the amount of GAM or just really transfer fees that they get, 100% of the proceeds. And that is very unique in the overall transfer policy by MLS. That's interesting. Yeah, the transfer fee goes to MLS, and then MLS hands them a paycheck based on this chart you've got here. That's very interesting, Yeah, not it? It's weird to think yeah, about. Yeah, for most transfers, you uh, MLS has gotten better about it. They used to take like a 15% cut of transfers, yeah. the league would. Now I think it's down to like five or seven, um, but yeah, basically they you know they they take it and then they give the the club most of it. And with this gam, this trading of gam, like gam is kind of can be worth more or less depending on the deal than an actual dollar. You know, it is just exactly. so crazy the thing moves that happen and why and in you know maybe keeping players in the league in some cases and in some cases it might not be for that reason. 
Well, when it comes to uh, in intra league trades, you saw, especially with I think Kellen Acosta was uh, frustrated with some of that that That's was happening true. because he wasn't making as much as he would have if he was sold outside of the league, but because the uh, because he, the teams involved in the trade were trading GAM back and forth, mm. it was more beneficial to the teams in MLS to trade him inside the league so that they can get GAM as opposed to selling him and getting less overall money than that GAM deal earned them. And actually, I just, I'm glad you mentioned that because the downside here is to the player. You know, I think the, it, the PA needs to work toward that because a player gets part of the transfer fee to another mm-hmm. country, to another team outside of MLS. Yep. But he didn't see an ounce of that GAM money that went back and forth, I don't think. I don't know. Definitely not of the GAM. I think the... The, he was, you know, he still had a contract that was being honored, but it was basically like just moving chess pieces around the board at yeah. that point where he wasn't seeing any part. It wasn't an official transfer That's at that point. It was like in, he, he moved teams, but his contract stayed with MLS the entire time. I'll have to revisit that that thought. I remember that quote in that athletic article. It was a good one. What's next? Special discovery players. Is that next? Yeah, this one's uh, I was I was debating how to even talk about this one because it's kind of a. Uh, Kind of an interesting, um, just an interesting thing. So they're, the way that they call it in the in the rules are that um, a player can be more or less identified and signed with a designation as a special discovery player, and it allows the team to shift around some of the money that they get from the transfer fee. So if they designate a player that they sign as a special discovery player they can, for instance, sign him to a, uh, a $500,000 contract for two years, right? So if, they, if you sign a player and you say, okay, we're going we're gonna to designate him a special discovery player, and that's really all you have to do. You get, every team gets one. You can say, we're signing him for $500,000. We had to pay a $200,000 transfer fee, so now he's going to be a $700,000 cap hit. But we would prefer to not have that transfer fee apply in year one, which it does automatically, we would rather have that transfer fee split over the duration of the contract. So this to me, and so the the example is, if you designate somebody as a special discovery player, you sign them to a $500,000 contract for two years, the you, you pay a $200,000 transfer fee, that cap hit may be 600000 in each year as you split that transfer fee over the two years, mm-hmm. which that that in particular keeps that player under the max salary so he doesn't have to be in DP consideration. So this to me, if you again apply it to St. Louis City, um, we talked uh, earlier about Jacques Klaus, Edward Leuven, their transfer fees, are they being spread out throughout the, the contract? You know, Are they going to be DPs for the life of their contract? And unless, which we haven't heard, but unless... Jacques, Jacques Klaus was a special discovery player, then that transfer fee hits this year mm-hmm. and it's applied to his, his uh, salary budget this year. That's why he's a DP without that transfer fee. He may be able to be bought down. And so then you're seeing as long as he's uh, not a special discovery player, which it wouldn't make, it would not make sense for him to be a DP and a special discovery player in this no. sense. So because he's not a special discovery player, his transfer fee is not going to be a part of his salary budget hit next year, year after. He could be very well bought down using GAM because he's not making uh, as much as Berkey at that 1.65. And so 
until we have a special discovery player where we're shifting the transfer fee, you can assume that guys like Leuven and guys like Klaus going forward after year one are potentially convertible down. Mm. So in, in, in general, all this special discovery player does is it, it's useful for avoiding the use of a DP slot or avoiding the use of additional gam and tam to have to buy down the contract for one year. You're spreading the transfer fee out, essentially. Makes sense. Um, yep. Matt, we are over an hour, and it looks like we're about halfway through. So I think maybe we should do one more because I'm seeing that Super Draft is coming up. So I think maybe we do one more topic and then we do another show next week. That sounds absolutely fine. We may be able to get through this really quick, though. So we'll see what happens. But I do think uh, the rest this next of this? topic. Is, this next topic is kind of long. Yeah, I think so it, it makes sense too with the with the super draft um, coming. Let's soon. do it. So, so there there are ways to acquire a player, and MLS has very specific rules for how you can acquire a player, um, adding them to your roster. Uh, one of them is an allocation process. So there exists a ranking list in MLS that allows you to sign. Um, select U.S. men's national team players, select youth national team, former MLS, returning to MLS uh, after they've been you know, outside the league. And if you, if you are on this list, so this is a very specific list that MLS has, and there's a website that you can go to to see who is on that list. Matt Miaska was on the list for FC Cincinnati. And every team is ranked on this. St. Louis City will be at the number one rank when they enter the league. And so teams can use this to sign players coming in. You'll oftentimes hear a trade has occurred, a team sends GAM from one team to another to move up in the allocation order, and then that team that moves up immediately signs somebody. That happens all the time. St. Louis City has the primo spot in the number one order to be able to leverage it. For example, on how it was leveraged amazingly well this year by, of all teams, FC Cincinnati. Shout out to Pat Noonan. (laughs) FC Cincinnati had the number one allocation spot. Toronto needed to be able to select Richie Larea, who is re-entering the league on loan. So Toronto traded a boatload of GAM to FC Dallas to get up to the number two spot, a boatload of GAM to FC Cincinnati to move up to the number one spot. They signed Larea, and then FC Cincinnati immediately moved back up to the number one spot because Toronto moves down. And then FC Cincinnati was able to make all that boatload of GAM and then sign Matt Miazga. Hmm. who has done wonders for them. So they, they made bank just by being in that number one slot. So allocation process is just you're able to sign national team players, you're able to sign um, non-MLS players returning to the league in a very uh, specific order. And teams need to play that order by spending GAM to sign outside players. This is one I've never understood why it exists. It's a good question on why it still exists. I will say that. Do you know what they were Um, thinking when they first made it? Parody. They don't want to create bidding wars between the teams on Uh, signing players from outside the league, national team, high profile players. league competition, single entity. Okay. I keep forgetting. Yeah. So to to create parody, prevent that uh, intra-league fighting among teams for escalation, price wars, escalation Mm. of all that stuff. That's why the allocation order exists. And it's one of those antiquated things that, similar to all the other mechanisms, it has a lot of outdatedness to it. Interesting. Uh, The other obvious one is a trade. And so we mentioned you can trade uh, general allocation money to players. Trades can occur everything from players to general allocation money to allocation rankings, international roster slots, college-protected player priorities, discovery priorities, homegrown player priorities, 
you can trade just about anything that exists. Hmm. Um, selection in the MLS Super Draft, the re-entry process, waiver order. You can you can do all this. And so we'll, we do hear about all of these different things. And there does exist a primary transfer window and a secondary transfer window that you have to play within. Um, and, and they have to be leveraged during the season. So there are, are lockouts, one of which is about to um, unlock here in the offseason for MLS. So during the season, they do have those transfer windows. Hmm. Now... The big thing that's really going to impact uh, St. Louis City are the drafts. So the expansion draft isn't directly called out in the roster rules because it's uh, there's not guaranteed to be an expansion team. But the expansion draft is a way to uh, for a team to sign players. It's not a way for players to enter the league to a new team because the expansion draft you're taking from existing players. So that's how St. Louis City is going to start to acquire players. But when it comes to players entering the league, the super draft is one of the biggest mechanisms to bring in collegiate athletes. So the MLS Super Draft is now consisting of three rounds where all of really most all of the draft prospects are NCAA college seniors who have exhausted their collegiate eligibility. It does include Generation Adidas players as well as non-college international players who are eligible for the Super Draft. Clubs can nominate players from a draft-eligible list and only players from that list may be selected. So the league holds the list basically of what all players are possible to be selected. The super draft order is set by taking the reverse order of club standings at the end of each season, taking into account postseason performance. Expansion teams are always at the top of that order. So St. Louis City will almost assuredly take a Generation Adidas player with their first overall pick. We've talked about the advantages it provides to your roster, the the way that salaries are structured. So... Watch out in December for who's going to be available on those Generation Adidas contracts that are, again, with the league like all others, and we'll have a defined list put out. And we will cover that extensively. Absolutely. Deep dives into those players will happen. <laughs> um, so what are you thinking, Matt? Should we, should we cut it off there, or do you want to finish this entire list? What are you thinking? I'm not going to go deep into most of these. I think one of the only other things to really call out, um, there's kind of two things. There's a, there's a discovery process that exists um, with the league. So it, it really comes to uh, clubs can say, okay, there exists this superstar or this other player in another part of the world, and I want to have rights to him. So if, if he comes to MLS... I want to be the team that has him. And so MLS has a process called the discovery process where a club can place first priority on a player on a discovery list. Clubs can have up to seven players on this type of a list at any time and can remove or add players. No limit to really how many players a a club can sign from the list. But it, it is what you're thinking if you're trying to picture what this might actually look like. You know, it doesn't consist of MLS players currently. It doesn't consist of those on the allocation ranking list of the national team players and those who have played in MLS doesn't consist of um, who another club has a right to doesn't consist of uh, college or amateur members underage. It doesn't any, none of that. Best example I can really give is if uh, let's say the San Jose earthquakes had a tried to put in a discovery claim to a Lionel Messi, they would be, almost assuredly denied that by the league because the league also does a a check to see if there will need to be significant investment from that club. If the club has a practical ability or feasibility to sign that player, you just can't place all of these random 
superstar players on your discovery list. You have to be vetted by the club, by the league rather, to ensure that you can actually sign these players. And so Messi can't just be added to any team's discovery list. Mm, um, you know, Ronaldo doesn't exist on those unless you prove that you have the financial means to actually bring them. I doubt even Gareth Bale was on a discovery list. So, so can you explain the difference between the allocation list and the discovery list? Oh, for sure. So the allocation list only consists of U.S. national team members, youth national team members, or former MLS players returning to MLS. That's the allocation list. That's the allocation list. Thank you. So when we're on the allocation ranking, uh, that's all that it consists of. Cool. Like your, your Brendan Aronsons, your uh, Pulisic, you know, all those types of players. The discovery process is everybody else. Basically. And this is, again, to avoid price hiking and competition, right? Yeah. And you'll often see trade. Well, I don't know about often, but you will see trades for a player's discovery rights mm-hmm. where a team will want to sign a player, but some other team has their discovery rights. And so they'll trade them GAM to have discovery rights to bring them into the league. And you'll find players on someone's discovery list where it's just like dibs, like they had no intention of signing them. They just wanted someone else to pay for them. Exactly. You'll have, you'll squatting does happen. Yeah. And, and it really happens because you can make a claim. Any club can make a claim that they have the financial wherewithal and, you know, they're scouting him and they have every, every intention to consider him. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it's, it's not like that level. You know, you have players like Messi where, okay, unless you're Miami, you're probably not going to be able to get them that the league's probably not going to allow, but trades do happen because a player is on some teams discovery list and another team wants them Mm -hmm. now there are other types of things like there's a related party transaction where a club like new york red bull might be owned by uh, have another team in their umbrella organization city football group is another good example Mm -hmm. so there are restrictions on how players are transferred back and forth between those types of teams the league makes all those final determinations we talked about homegrown player signings Uh, there are affiliate signings that happen from MLS Next Pro and currently USL Championship mm-hmm. affiliate teams um, that play into it. There are re-entry processes, which that w- that will actually affect City. So the re-entry process is ha- it happens after MLS Cup, and there's a, a re- reverse order of the finish where expansion teams are at the top. There's a stage one. There's a stage two where players can re-enter the league after having uh, minimum levels of MLS service and. Clubs who have their rights can extend offers, but City might end up with a few players that are re-entering MLS who are at least basically 22 years old. Mm. Free agency does exist in MLS. Um, free agency window opens at the end of the season, similar to other free agency uh, in other leagues. Waivers exist in similar manners. The free agency um, thing, sorry, the PA had to fight for this. So players yes. wanted this free agency. And I think that was because they were being stuck on this re-entry draft and they weren't getting as much money out of it. And it, it I think it was ending careers faster as well. I'm not sure why, but I know the players had to fight for it. It's tricky when your contract is held by the league to enter free agency in the league because mm. technically you're, while your contract with a team uh, may reach its end, you're still contracted to the league. And so at that point, the team who's paying your salary isn't seeing a benefit. You know, there's a lot of, of that weird jargon going on mm-hmm. um, when the league owns your contract. I'm happy the players actually got that through. And free agency is a lot more robust now than it was a few years ago. Hmm. Um, 
there, I mean, there's other things that allow for teams to sign players through extreme hardships. Uh, if you get season ending injuries, you can replace players. There are short term injury replacements you can sign. Uh, you can sign them to the senior and supplemental roster. Just a, a lot of other uh, nuts and bolts that go into it that, you know, we'll talk about them if and when they happen to City. But all that we really, I think, need to know is that they exist mm-hmm. as uh, capabilities. Nice. Boy, you just knocked a bunch out. <laughs> I'm uh, telling you, there, there's a few that are just uh, almost white noise and you can read yeah. about them as opposed to listening about them. It doesn't. But that's kind of why I was trying to hurry things up. I apologize. But yeah, I was like, boy, we're going to start banging our heads against the wall because some of this stuff is so crazy. But it is important. And it may be something we circle back around to. Right, Matt? We were talking about maybe doing some of that. Oh, especially when when they happen to City. That'll be and, and when they yeah. happen in the league in general. So once once City starts play and we actually follow uh, transactions in the league a little more closely that may ancillarily impact City, we'll definitely talk about them. And I'm going to keep this uh, this outline you made because most important thing here is that Matt has the knowledge now. He's done the studying, and when this happens, we'll be able to whip this back out and know what we're talking about, or Matt will rather. Anything else you want to talk about before we go? I mean, there's plenty more. Yeah, I mean, there's always a lot more. And one of the things that uh, I think is good to know, um, but it's really just X's and Y's, are the overall salary budget information. So I'll go through them really quick. And it's from 2023 numbers. uh, We've talked about them a lot, um, but it's nice to hear them all in sequential order, really. So 2023, we expect the club salary budget, uh, based on the latest CBA, to be $5.2 million. That's the hard cap that teams can work around with Gam and Tam. The maximum salary budget charge for an individual player is going to be $651,250. Senior minimum salary is $84,000 on that supplemental roster. Reserve minimum salary is going to be $65,500 on the reserve roster. Um, there are the designated player charges are that max salary. The third designated player is the same unless they're a young DP. Young DPs, U22 initiative folks, they're only charging the salary budget $150,000 or $200,000. So you're seeing significant shifts to the younger players. Um, the the one kind of gray area, though, is as we record this, MLS does have a collectively bargained media rights uh, revenue sharing that will kick in, and because the media rights is through Apple now at a significant deal, uh, two hundred fifty million dollars per year minimum, there is expected to be some level of increase in player spending. Uh, right now, the CBA calls for that to be 12.5% for the next couple of years, and then it jumps to 25% increase uh, the next few years after that. So all the numbers we talk about, potential to go up even in 23 just because of this additional revenue sharing that is directly going to uh, player spending. Yeah, and that's something to be thinking about when we start building our roster. But I think, have you already covered, too, that as an expansion team, you get more GAM anyway, right? Yeah, so along with the GAM that you get, every team gets of $1.9 million, um, we talked briefly that expansion teams do get a specific amount more than that. And from talking to different sources, it does seem like that number is pretty consistent year over year, at least the past three years, of around $1.1 million or $1.1 million of GAM. So St. Louis City will have additional GAM uh, to play with compared to the other teams. Um, they still have that 2.72 or so TAM. there, and, and that's why you see deals like Roman Berkey's Max TAM deal, and you're not too overly concerned about the, the 
uh, strong arming it might do to our roster flexibility. Yes, uh, it does raise eyebrows in the sense of how you put together a roster on the the max salary charges and Mm -hmm. what kind of what that means. But uh, ultimately, you're given more as an expansion club. And if we use the rest of our money wisely for young designated player, U22s, homegrowns, so many mechanisms that reward signing and developing younger players. And that speaks directly to the heart of a lot of what Lutz has said about giving those young players a chance and selling them off. I think as we look into the future, a lot of those transfer fees, how they can be converted into GAM, um, a lot of the, 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 benefits that a team sees from signing and selling we're going to realize those very directly yeah and and go after going after the, uh, over this a lot you know i gave lots of reasons online about that whole situation but it is like a mix of two things in my mind after ta- like going through here that gam can really bail you out there is so much of it and it's growing every year that I do think even if you make a bad decision or a historically de- a decision that hasn't worked out like the Berkey thing in MLS, um, GAM can bail you out. But there is still that like in the back of your mind, like, are you going to get to the end of this offseason and be like, oh, crap, I need two more midfielders or I need another attacking guy and I'm out of GAM. Like, what am I going to do? We don't want that to happen either. And that literally could happen if they're not careful. I haven't heard of a team doing that. But maybe that's what happened when Miami had like four DPs and they maybe they were out of money to buy it down. You know what I mean? I, maybe that was I the think, answer. I think you're spot on. I think Miami had uh, an idea of buying players down using TAM and it didn't work for one way or another. <laughs> and they just couldn't because if a player makes up to one point six five now a million, you can buy them down with GAM or with TAM to get to that max salary budget charge. Yeah. And so something went wrong in their math and their capabilities and they were in trouble. Now, w- one thing too is that because there's a level of anonymity to who you're applying GAM to, I think all we're left to do is speculate on the public knowledge yeah. of how much a player makes on what's reported through MLSPA, how much GAM and TAM we know a player, a team has at their disposal to start with, and then we can start estimating um, what a team might do with their gam. So there's, there's an inherent push and pull of if you have a player's contract and you apply gam to them, you're losing gam, but you're gaining flexibility in your overall hard salary cap of that 5.2 million. So that's the push and pull that a team really has to monitor and keep track of not just how much gam you have left, not just how much TAM you have left, but how much you're willing to apply to any given player to meet that overall $5.2 million hard cap. Everything about this just reminds me of turning in your taxes every year. You know what I mean? Like there you're you do your own taxes, you do your own math. And at the end of every year, you have to like add it all up and make sure it's right. And then you send it to the IRS and then the IRS tells you whether you're right or not. You know what I mean? And it's like it's just very interesting that all these rules apply that I just almost like I wonder if there's like maybe I've seen this in faint memories in the past on Twitter, like a flow chart of all the rules. Like, is he this? OK, go to this square. Yep. Is he this? Go to that square. And it's like there are so many ways you could like finagle this. And it feels like there should be like accountants for for MLS teams to figure all this out. And maybe there are. I don't know. I'm, there has to be. And honestly, I think of it as a combination of a puzzle and football manager put together. Yeah, totally. Because it, it's it's not just the regular football manager signing a player and all the uh, intrinsic 
qualitative things you have to evaluate and in contentness and all that stuff. But it's really a puzzle of putting together all these pieces, knowing that you have a pool of money that you can apply to players at oh any given gosh. time. And one thing I've always been really curious at, and I guarantee I'm never going to get an answer unless I really take somebody to a bar for a night, <laughs> is how do you determine, when do you determine how you're going to apply GAM and TAM? And at what point does that consideration really go into signing a player? I know. Because other than the straight trades, like the Paul Areola, the Kellen Acosta, where you're just straight trading GAM, are you signing a player to uh, X number of contract and thinking, okay, I think I'm going to put in, I'm going to, I'm going to apply 200,000 of GAM towards this player. And that should, I think that'll get me where I want. So you sign the player and they're, well, no, I think I'm going to sign this other player. So maybe I need to have applied 400,000 to this first one. So, you know, there's a lot of puzzle pieces that kind of keep shifting here. In, yeah, and like, and, can you pick up the puzzle piece and move it? You know, like, well, do you have someone in a slot and then you're like, well, if I move them to this slot, then it makes room for someone over here. That's what I'm wondering, too. So I think I, if I had to guess and I was a betting man, I would say yes to an extent because there, are roster, there are roster lock dates built into every uh, roster rules every oh. year. It's usually like two days before a couple days before the season starts, your rosters have to be locked into place. And so I, I fully believe that there is a level of moving the pieces around the puzzle or picking up some gam and putting it over here Mm -hmm. and how you, because I have no doubt it's a spreadsheet system or some kind of database that you're saying this player has 200,000 gam applied to him. His salary budget charge is going to be 300,000. And, and you do that for every single one of your players up until this roster lock date in which MLS is going to start evaluating teams at that point. That's why we didn't hear about Inter-Miami until after the season yeah. started because they turned in their roster lock. It was <laughs> messed up. They broke the rules on the DPs. And then MLS found out after they evaluated those roster That's locks. so funny. I just picture the. I mean, there's so many jokes about Miami, but I just picture them the night before, like last minute cramming their homework, and they're just like, "What do I do? I don't know what to do." They're, they're checking the clock, eleven fifty-eight, yeah. eleven fifty-nine. They're clicking send as quick as possible. Coffee and pills and <laughs> energy drinks. Cool. I, we can stop there, right, Matt? Is that good? That that about covers it. Honestly, um, it's a massive amount of information. I think we're going to try to slice it up a little bit, or you know, look at some timestamps on these and, and give that uh, little highlights of that. But honestly, as if if anybody actually listens to this and cares enough to ask clarifying questions, yes. I would honestly love nothing more than to answer clarifying questions. Or if somebody, if I didn't explain something uh, clear enough, or there's just any kind of ambiguity. I really, my ultimate goal in all of this is really to get St. Louis soccer fans more knowledgeable in the ecosystem that we're about to step into. So I, I always hate the fact that something seems obvious to me. And so I don't, I don't talk about it when somebody else is out there and they have no idea what they're reading, no idea the, the framework or the context. So I want to help provide that context. I want to be that resource so that people can enjoy not just the on the field action, but off the field. I like hearing about how Cardinal players' salaries are impacting our ability to sign other players. So if I can help contextualize that for anybody else, I think that's the ultimate goal that we want to do here. Absolutely. I agree. And Matt, I just want to say thank you so much for doing all this research, typing all this up. It is going to pay dividends going through seasons to come for us. So, man, I really appreciate you doing all that and explaining it so well as well. I loved it. It's real. We're here. I know, right? It does. Yeah, this is another step, right? Um, so yeah, I hope everyone, it was helpful for you as well as it was for me. Um, 
ask questions, slide in our DMs. We'll be posting more videos to clarify stuff throughout the month or year. And oh, yeah. uh, hope you enjoyed it. We'll be doing a normal episode next week since we fit it all in this episode. Again, thanks, thanks to Matt's quick, quick movements here. That's it, guys. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Nice.